0: Good evening, everybody. Yeah, okay. So I thought we would start with perhaps about a half an hour of silent meditation in order to, since many of us are coming from a busy day of work, and I had to leave the peace and quiet of Phuongan Monastery in upstate New York and navigate the New York City subway system and walking through the busy streets. So it's good to have a half an hour or so just to settle our mind, quiet our mind, before we speak and listen to the Dharma. Is there anybody who needs very basic instructions in meditation? Okay, so I guess everybody already has some familiarity with basic meditation, basic meditation techniques. So just use whatever method of meditation has been most congenial to yourself. And so we'll sit quietly for half an hour. And the gong is a little bit far from my arm. I could just... (laughs) Okay. Wow, this is heavy. Okay, so... One strike will signify the beginning of the session, and two strikes will signify the end. Okay, you can relax now. (laughs) Okay, I'd like to begin in the traditional way by reciting the standard verse of homage to the Buddha. And if you're familiar with this, this is namotasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddasa. If you're familiar with it, you can recite along with me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Okay, once again, good evening everybody. (laughs) And so this evening we begin a three-day retreat And this retreat is based upon a sutta or a discourse of the Buddha, which is called the Mangala Sutta or the Mahamangala Sutta. The word mangala I've translated here as blessing. And so this is called the Discourse on Blessings or Mahamangala, the Great Discourse on Blessings though blessing is not quite an accurate rendering, or it's not quite a satisfactory rendering of the word mangala. The word mangala is a concept which is very, very basic in the Indian culture and worldview, for which we don't quite have an exact equivalent in English. Perhaps we could conceive of it as the idea of that which is auspicious, or that which is conducive to good fortune. So it's not a blessing in the sense that a blessing that somebody else confers on us, but it is those things, those practices, that conduce to, that lead to, that eventuate in good fortune, in happiness, well-being, and for Buddhism, the ultimate liberation. The Mahamangala Sutta occurs two places in the Pali Canon. The main location of it is a collection of discourses called the Sutta Nipata, for which I'm in the process currently of reading the proofs for. <laughs> For a new elephant that's about to be born, later this year. Yeah, it occurs in the sutta-nipata in chapter two and it's sutta number four. And then it also occurs in a very small work also in the Sutta Bhittaka, that little very small work, it's called the Kudaka Pata, which is, it seems to me, it's a collection of materials which which might have been compiled for the use of novice monks so that novice monks become familiar with a selection of very basic Buddhist texts. And in a country like Sri Lanka, the, the Mahamangala Sutta is recited regularly, very often as a protective discourse, what we call a Parita Sutta, or in Singhalese, Pirita, so that when people are like setting out in a new stage of their life, maybe a couple about to be married, a youngster about to go to high school or to college, a person searching for a job or starting a new job, they come to the monastery and they'll ask the monks to recite some blessing suttas. And almost invariably on these special occasions, the monks will choose the Mangala Sutta for recitation because it's believed that it has the power to bring about the fulfillment of one's good and wholesome wishes. And now as Buddhism comes to America and starts to develop in America, I know many people like to study what we consider very deep, profound, perplexing, difficult topics like not the teaching of non-self, dependent origination, emptiness, <laughs> the satipatthana, um, the relationship of the jhanas and vipassana jnanas, the insight knowledges. But what I like about the Mahamangala Sutta is that it covers what I would call, very concisely, the entire scope, the entire range of a life lived in accordance with the Dharma. Okay, we speak. Starting from the most basic elementary stage, taking us through the different aspects of human life, family, study, education, training, taking us to family life, our relationship with the rest of society, then to the development of inner virtues, then to intensive practice of meditation, awakening and liberation. So it presents what I would call a totalistic picture of the Dhamma. And so what is this? We use this word Dhamma or Sanskrit Dharma. But what is Dhamma? Where is it the word derived from? What does it really basically mean? Is this visible from the back? Okay? Okay, the word Dhamma or Sanskrit Dharma is derived from the verb Dharati or the causative form Dharati The verb dharati means to support, to sustain. And so dharma is that which supports human beings or living beings, that which sustains living beings in their quest to achieve well-being and happiness. So dharma is not the exclusive domain of the Buddha's teaching. But the idea of Dhamma was already widespread in India at the time of the Buddha. So the Dhamma is considered something like, we might call it, a timeless universal law or principle at the very foundation of the universe a fundamental principle which supports and sustains a, a, a fundamental principle of goodness and of truth that supports and sustains human beings and other living beings in their aspirations and their efforts to fulfill and to embody goodness and truth in their lives. And so even though as it this impersonal timeless universal law dhamma is one singular but dhamma takes on many different manifestations or expressions according to the situations of the people who are attempting to live by dhamma i compare this to use an analogy it's (laughs) it's somewhat like on a clear cloudless night. We have the full moon shining in the sky and different maybe pools of water, a pond, a lake, puddles that where rainwater has collected. So each of these bodies of water will reflect the moon, the full moon in its own way. And so though the moon is one but there are many different reflections of the moon according to the capacity of that body of water according to the surface whether it's wavy or smooth and so though dharma is essentially one but people in different living their lives in different situations in different contexts different relationships have ways to pursue and to fulfill the dharma in their lives So there will be a dhamma, the appropriate dhamma for a student in relation to the teachers, an appropriate dhamma for the teacher in relation to the students, appropriate dhamma for husband in relation to wife, wife in relation to husband, parents in relation to children, children in relation to parents. And so all of these are aspects of the dhamma. And we can see that the Dhamma, in a sense, converges, building up upon a foundation of fundamental basic virtues to be aspired to, to be fulfilled in one's day-to-day life. And then it sort of converges and builds up to higher and higher peaks until it culminates in the attainment, the realization of the ultimate Dhamma, which is the Dhamma of enlightenment and liberation okay so i said that the dhamma exists existed in indian culture and in indian society before the time of the buddha but what the buddha's special accomplishment was to discover and to realize what i would say the dhamma in its full extent in all of its different expressions, manifestations, beginning with the most basic, culminating in the highest, and then to cleanse the concept of Dhamma in the Indian culture of his period, to cleanse it of what we might call distorted accretions that had crept into the idea of Dhamma, and to expound it, to reveal it to the world, to make it known in its pristine purity and so i would as i look at the mangala sutta i see it as a discourse of the buddha which covers many many different dimensions of dhamma practice not just as meditation practice but guidelines very concisely expressed of how does one live the Dhamma in one's day-to-day life? How does one embody Dhamma in one's own inner cultivation, in one's relation to the different communities in which one might be embedded? Communities extending from the family outwards to the rest of society, to the nation, even to the whole world. And so for this reason, I think we could say that the Mangala Sutta gives us this very comprehensive, though concisely expressed, this very comprehensive overview of the Buddha's teaching as not just a teaching for a monastic elite or for a small segment of devoted meditators, but for people in many different walks and ranges of life. Okay, my style of teaching, I'm afraid to say, in this day of innovation and exploration, where the ideal is always to come up with new ways of teaching the (laughs) Dhamma, innovative interpretations, I'm very old fashioned and traditional. And so my way of explanation, it's very much within a traditional way of explaining, and my understanding is very traditional though I say I'm a very non-traditional monk in my way of life, (laughs) but in my way of explaining and understanding the Dhamma, very traditional. So the way I like to proceed is to go through and to read the Sutta virtually line by line, both in Pali and in English, and then to explain each important word and expression. And I want you to help me out by reading along with me when we can read the Pali together. And then we'll read it sentence by sentence, and then I'll explain the important words. So let us begin first. We could start actually with the title. So the title is Maha Mangala Sutta. Maha Mangala Sutta. And actually, when we take that full Pali title, then the English rendering is a little defective because the word maha means great, mangala is what I translate as blessings, and then the word sutta as discourse. Okay, so we begin like almost all of the suttas that have been compiled in the Pali canon begin with the word Avang me sutang, And according to the tradition, this expression was attached to all of the suttas by the compilers at the First Great Council to give it the kind of seal of authority or stamp of authority that this is an authentic discourse of the Buddha. And these words, it said, were spoken by the venerable Ananda. The venerable Ananda was the Buddha's personal attendant. And Ananda had an extremely vast extremely vast capacity for memorizing texts. His retentive capacity was said to be outstanding. And so Ananda, it said, had maintained by memory all of the discourses of the Buddha. So the Buddha always followed along the Buddha, so he was present. When the Buddha would give a discourse, he would hear it and then bear it in memory. And if he was absent on some occasion, then those who were present, even the Buddha himself, would relate to Ananda the discourse that was spoken. And maybe you think, how is it possible for a human being to memorize so many texts? But actually, our own mnemonic capacities, our own retentive capacities, I have to say, have become severely atrophied because we have developed a literate culture, a culture that's dependent upon the written word, But in a traditional culture, people's ability to memorize things is much sharper sharper than our own. And especially in ancient India, there were those who trained themselves in memorizing texts. Um, I've met, I mean, years ago, I met a Buddhist monk from Burma who, it said, had memorized the entire Pali canon, the entire Tripitaka which is like more than 40 volumes. This is what I was told. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't test them and say, <laughs> yeah, let us you know, take out a couple of years from our lives and why don't you recite the whole thing for me? <laughs> yeah, but I know even my teacher... In Sri Lanka, the venerable Balangoda Nanda Maitreya had memorized like many texts, not the whole Tripitaka, but many texts, and he spoke fluent English, and one of the ways he learned English was he would get the translations from the Pali Text Society back this was in probably the nineteen thirties, and he would take the text and memorize it. Okay, so Ananda had this capacity to memorize texts, and so when the monks uh, convened to hold the first council, then they appointed Ananda the reciter of the discourses. And they determined to use this formula by which Ananda would certify that in such a way I heard this either directly from the Buddha himself or through the lines of transmission of those who heard it and related it to me okay then follows a kung sama okay then we continue to recite together a kung samayang bhagava sa viharati Jetavanni, Jeta Anatapindikasa, Anata Arame. Arame. Okay, so Ekang Samayang means on one occasion, at one time. Bhagava is a special word, designation applied to the Buddha, which I'm going to explain a little bit at length. Then Savatthiang means at Savati. Savati was a city in, now it will be in Uttar Pradesh in northern India. And it was the city where the Buddha had his principal monastery. The principal monastery is known by two names. One is Jetavana. Jetavana means Prince Jeta's Grove because it originally belonged to the son of King Pasenadi, the king of Kosala, whose name was Jeta. And Jeta, uh, Prince Jeta had sold it to a wealthy merchant named Anattapindika. Anattapindika was a wealthy merchant who became a devotee of the Buddha, and Anattapindika wanted the Buddha to come to Savatthi and to live in Savatthi. And so he invited him to come to that city and he realized that he had to set up a monastery for the Buddha and he looked around for a suitable piece of land and the ideal piece of land that he saw seemed to be out of range because it belonged, it was the woods belonging to Prince Jeta. And so Anathapindika struck a deal with Prince Jeta by which he paid a very large amount of money, many gold and coins, in order to purchase that plot of land. And on that land, he set up the monastery, built cottages and cabins, meeting hall, latrines, a bathing place, wells, provided it with all the amenities necessary in a monastery, and so it came to be called anathapindika's monastery okay this word bhagava is what we translate a bit unsatisfactorily as the blessed one and the word bhagava the commentaries give various explanations of it none of which really makes good sense in English. The word "buga" literally means something like a portion or a section. So it could mean something like a portion of good fortune. And the suffix va means one who possesses that good fortune. So we could even render bhagava as the fortunate one, not in the sense that he's one who's struck it lucky just by chance, but the one who possesses all of the qualities of good fortune, the one who is the embodiment of the supreme ideal. And in Indian religious culture, each particular school of thought or each particular religious community will call their founder, their ideal figure, Bhagavad. So if you know the great Hindu a classic called Bhagavad Gita, that means the Gita is the song of Bhagava, of the Blessed One, the Lord, the Fortunate One. But what is meant in that title, Bhagavad Gita, is not the song of praise to the Buddha, <laughs> but for the Hindus, the followers of the Bhagavad Gita, their Bhagava is Krishna. And then in the twentieth century, the followers of Ramana Maharshi, the sage who taught the non-dual philosophy, the dualistic philosophy in South India, they refer to him, his followers as Bhagavan Bhagavan Raj, uh, Bhagavan Ramana Ramana Mahashi. and then late in the 20th century I don't know if he's so famous anymore but there was another a little bit of a controversial Indian teacher who was called Bhagavan Rajneesh so his followers would call him Bhagavan Bhagavan was not his proper name but it's that title of respect and veneration that is assigned to him. But for Buddhists, in the Buddhist texts, the texts will always speak about the Buddha. In fact, very seldom or very relatively infrequently do they use the word Buddha to refer to him. But the most common way in which the texts refer to him is by the word Bhagava. And for Buddhists, the word Bhagava is used exclusively in relation to the Buddha himself. Though so not only to the present Buddha, the Buddha of the present age, Gotama or Shakyamuni, but for the Buddhas of the past, in past aeons or periods of time, they are also referred to as Bhagava. And so when we speak about the Buddha, as bhagava this raises the question you know what is the buddha why do we speak about him as bhagava and now in the buddhist tradition we speak about the word buddha we say means the enlightened one or the awakened one. But in Buddhist tradition, we speak about three types of awakened ones, three types of beings who achieve enlightenment, supreme enlightenment. We could even call them three types up Okay, so the three types are sama, sam Buddha. Sama means fully, perfectly, completely. Sambuddha Buddha is let's say enlightened. So this is one who's perfectly, fully enlightened. Then there is the Pacheka Buddha. The Buceka Buddha is one, uh, we translate this as sometimes as solitary enlightened one or personally individually enlightened one. And then there is the Arahat who is a disciple of the Buddha. And sometimes we could call the Arahat Anu Buddha, one who is enlightened after the Buddha or by following the Buddha's instructions and also called Chattu-satcha-buddha, one who becomes enlightened through realization of the Four Truths, the Four Noble Truths. So what is the difference between these three types of persons? Firstly, the distinctive characteristic of the samasambuddha, the fully, perfectly enlightened one is that he attains enlightenment during a period when the supermundane, the world-transcending Dhamma, the Dhamma of ultimate liberation, is not known in the world. That is, according to the Buddhist view of history, history unfolds in cycles. There'll be periods in which there is a Buddha has arisen in the world. He is teaching, proclaiming, propagating the Dhamma. And there are many beings, people who listen, learn the Dhamma under his guidance, follow, practice, and achieve enlightenment through his guidance. But in time, the Dhamma will start to decay, deteriorate, become diluted, adulterated, corrupted, until it disappears. So the liberating Dhamma will not be known in the world. Then at a certain point, a human being will appear who, by his own efforts, his own striving, without any guidance from others, without any access to the liberating teaching, breaks through that barrier of ignorance, the darkness of ignorance, and discovers the ultimate truth, realizes Nibbana, the state of liberation, discovers the Noble Eightfold Path and all of the other teachings conducive to liberation, and then proclaims those teachings in the world again. And he establishes what we call the Dharma, He establishes the good dharma in the world in embodied communal forms. He establishes the sangha. He proclaims the dharma so that others can follow in his footsteps and realize the ultimate. And so this is a sama-sambuddha. He achieves complete mastery over the whole range of the Dhamma and is able to teach it in precisely the right ways that people should learn it in order to progress and attain realization themselves. So that is the special function of the sama To achieve this very vast comprehensive understanding of the Dhamma, and then to establish the Dhamma in embodied institutional communal forms in the world, so that the Dhamma will continue to be propagated for generation after generation, even through the centuries. Okay, the second type of enlightened being is called a Pacheka Buddha. The word Pacheka means individually, personally. And Buddha, of course, means awakened or enlightened. So a Pacheka Buddha is one who, without any guidance or instruction from others, again, just through his own cultivation, development. In a period when the Dhamma is not known, not being propagated, the Pacheka Buddha is one who breaks through that curtain of ignorance, realizes the truth, penetrates the truth, gains liberation, But the Pacheka Buddha does not have that special ability or that inclination to propagate the Dhamma in the world. He's not able to transmit the liberating Dhamma to others. Sometimes in popular conception it's thought that the Pacheka Buddha is, sometimes it's translated as a silent Buddha, And it's thought that the Pacheka Buddhas just live completely individually without any connection to others. But in the traditional texts, that's not the case. The Pacheka Buddhas can, they'll teach basic ethics to others, they'll give fellow strivers some instructions in meditation. And in the commentaries, they're sometimes shown even as living together in groups like groups of ascetics, but they don't make the attempt to transmit that liberating Dhamma to others, because they don't have the capacity to formulate it accurately into words, and they don't establish an institution, a community to carry on the transmission of the Dhamma through the generations. Okay, then the arahat, this is <clears throat> a disciple of the Buddha, a person, or it could even be not only a human being, but a divine being, somebody who hears the teaching, that learns the Dhamma from a sammasambuddha practices in accordance with the guidance of the Buddha, and then achieves enlightenment through their practice. And to achieve arhatship, it doesn't mean that one has to learn the Dhamma directly from the Buddha himself, but anyone who learns within the continuity of the transmission, even centuries later, as long as they learn within the continuity of the transmission, coming down from the Buddha himself through the lineage of teachers through the transmission of the text, the teachings embodied in the text. By learning the teaching and practicing as instructed, they break through the barrier of ignorance, uproot the mental defilements, and gain liberation. So all three, we could say, are identical in that they all realize the same fundamental truths all awaken to the four noble truths the three universal characteristics ignorance I'm um, sorry impermanence dukkha non-self all awaken to dependent origination so they awaken to the same principles they are identical in that they all liberate their minds from the defilements, all of the defilements rooted in ignorance and craving, greed, hatred, and delusion. For all three, these defilements are cut off at the root, completely eradicated. But they differ, the three differ in their capacities, the range of their understanding, and their ability to formulate and transmit the teaching to others. Okay so this is the three types of enlightened beings and it's only the Samasambuddha who is given this designation Bhagavad. Okay, so let us now continue to read the text. Okay, so now we continue. Atako anyatara devata Abhikantaya ratya Abhikantavana Kevalakap Jetavanang, O Basetva, Yena Bagava, Yena Bagava, Tain Upasankami. Okay, so the text continues. Okay, then, uh, I'm translating here word for word, then a certain deity when the night was far advanced. Uh, let me take the, the order of the translation here, otherwise we get bad English. Okay, now when the night was far advanced, apikantaya ratia, a certain de- de- deity, Anyatara devata. This was a deity of exceptional beauty. I see that's not in the translation. Abhikantavanna, vanna, the deity of exceptional beauty. Kevalakapang jetavanang obha setva. He illuminated the entire Jeta's grove with his beauty with his radiance, and then he approached the Blessed One. So we have a scene here. This is deep in the night when the rest of the world, or at least the rest of Savati, the city of Savati, and even the monks in the monastery, probably most of them are asleep. Now a certain deity comes from one of the Deva worlds, down to the human world, and as a deity descends and appears in the human world in Jaita's Grove, the deity is a being of light, so it's very beautiful, very radiant, and its radiance illuminates all of Jeta's Grove. And to see what is happening here, we should look at the Buddha's daily schedule, does anybody know the Buddha's daily schedule? Does anybody? Would you like to learn what kind of lifestyle, a routine schedule the Buddha has? If we could compare it to our own. And Yeah, this is based on the Pali commentaries, which probably base this information on the oral transmission that has come down to them. And um, in the Buddha's time, of course, they didn't have clocks. So, you know, I can't say what he's doing. At, that he's getting up at 3 a.m. and doing this at 5 a.m. and then going on his alms round at this particular time. But we could just give like approximate times. Okay, so starting at the even before dawn, so he rises early and this will be the last watch of the night, so it might be something like roughly three AM and after you know, washing his face, then he'll sit and he'll enter what is called the meditative attainment of fruition. In Pali this is called Pala Samapati. This is the special meditative attainment in which one can directly experience the bliss of Nibbana or Nirvana in this very life. And so this is the special meditative attainment which is accessible to any arhat, anyone who's reached arhatship, and for the Buddha this will be the most powerful experience of fruition. And so he'll spend some time in the attainment of fruition in which the mind becomes completely absorbed in the bliss and peace of Nibbana. Okay, then at a certain time he will emerge from fruition and then he enters what is called the Mahakaruna Samapati the meditative attainment of great compassion in which he directs his mind, extends the mind. Now it's not absorbed in nirvana, but now the mind extends and expands over the entire world and even over to multiple realms of existence, bringing all of those realms within his the range of his great compassion And the great compassion, the meditation of great compassion for the Buddha, it serves a little bit like a radar screen. Because as the Buddha is extending compassion to beings, you know, at certain times within this meditation of great compassion, blips will occur blip blip or like a little like an alert signal bing 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 that means that there are certain beings, certain people who are in trouble they might be people in trouble who need the buddha's help and so in that case the buddha can extend his blessing power to them which doesn't mean that automatically he'll save them from the trouble but through the force of the purity of his mind, the power of his compassion, he could help them through extending that compassionate wishes to them, or else he'll see certain people in his vicinity, or at least, or even maybe some distance away, who have suitable conditions, whose faculties are starting to mature, who have the capacity to make significant progress in their practice, and even to reach attainment, to make breakthroughs to realization. And so when the Buddha sees this, then he, he sees that these people are nearby, then he will make a sort of mental note to visit those people when the opportunity occurs and create opportunities to teach them the Dhamma. Okay, so he, for a period, he'll sit absorbed in the meditation, meditative attainment of great compassion, making the notes of those that he can benefit, who, could, who are in need of his assistance. Okay, then he'll continue sitting in meditation and maybe even doing some walking meditation until the time comes for his arms round. After the sun has risen and it's become bright. Okay, then he will go on alms round. And this is the routine when he's in a fixed dwelling, not when he's on a wandering tour, when it will change. To, that on those occasions, his schedule would be somewhat different because they'll always be in the morning walking from place to place. But here he's in a fixed residence, like the Jeta's Grove in Savati or the bamboo grove in Rajgir. So he'll go on alms round, sometimes he'll go alone, sometimes accompanied by a group of monks. Then after receiving alms, he'll consume his meal. Generally there will be like halls within the town which have been built for the Buddha and for the monks and the nuns to take their, their, their meal. And so after he finishes his meal, then the people who have offered the pindapata, the alms food during the day, they will assemble in that hall, that alms hall, and the Buddha will give a short talk to the people. They call this talk an anumodana. It's not a profound dhamma discourse, but it's a way of praising the blessings of generosity and of speaking about the observing of the precepts and encouraging the people to do good deeds. Okay, then the Buddha will return to the monastery and he'll wait perhaps on his porch, the veranda of his cottage, until all of the other monks have finished their meal and returned. Then the Buddha will retire into his cottage for some time, then later in the morning, he will meet with the monks, they'll come to him, and then the Buddha will have some discussion with them. He will, to those who are newly ordained or those who need some instructions in meditation, he'll assign meditation subjects. If they have questions, he'll answer their questions If they have particular problems that they meet in their practice, he'll give them guidance in their practice. And then he generally ends this morning session by exhorting the monks, strive on diligently. Appamadena Sampadeta. Okay, then he enters his cottage and then he may take a rest. He'll lie down, it's that he lies down mindfully on his right side in the lion's posture, that is with one leg on top of the other. And he admits even that in the summer when it's, the weather is hot, he'll take a short nap because he has a very busy routine, as you'll see. Okay, then he'll rise and again go into meditation, spend a period absorbed, it could be in the jhanas and deep samadhi, and then again arousing the great compassion and surveying the world. And if there are some people nearby who especially need his help, actually this should come, I should have mentioned this, in relation to the alms round, if the people that he could benefit are living nearby, then the Buddha will go specifically to that particular house, that particular family, and stand there on alms round. So then when the people come out to offer alms, then the Buddha can begin a conversation with them and teach them the Dhamma in a way that will benefit them. And sometimes these people will be those who have been hostile to the Buddha and to the, and to the Buddhism. But the Buddha knows the precise way in which to win them around and to transform them. So he'll stand there and somebody might say to him, get away, baldy head. We don't want you parasites, you wastrels coming around here. Then the Buddha will find some opportunity to begin a conversation with them and say, like, do you know what a real wastrel is? And then they'll be puzzled and say, no, what is a real wastrel? Then the Buddha will explain somebody who kills living beings, who steals, who commits adultery, who has no sense of self-respect or shame. That is a wastrel. And in this way, through skillful teaching, the Buddha will awaken their understanding. Okay, so coming back to the afternoon. Okay, after the nap, you'll spend some time in deep meditation, then survey the world again. And perhaps, again, he might go out in the afternoon if he sees people that he could benefit with his with his teaching. But if there's no special case like that, he'll just remain at the monastery, and then in the late afternoon, the people from the town or village will come to the monastery for a dhamma talk. And so in the late afternoon, the Buddha will give them a talk, and then when the talk is over, then they will depart." Okay, then after the talk, if he wants, he'll go to bays. There are probably wells at most of the monasteries, or else he might go to a river or to a pond to bathe. Then in the early evening, he spends a period sitting in meditation. Then during the first watch of the night, the monks will arrive again, and then he might give them a talk or answer their questions. Then, in the middle watch of the night, the deities from the entire, this is what the commentary says, from the 10,000-fold world system will arrive to ask questions. So these deities will come probably from One of the sense sphere heavenly worlds. That is, in Buddha's cosmology, we speak about. Of course, we have the human world in which we live. with which we are familiar. That there are six heavenly worlds above the human world and the beings who occupy these heavenly worlds are called devas or devatas, which we translate as deities. So these divine beings or heavenly beings are also potential receptacles of the Dhamma. Even if you look at the Buddha's first discourse where the Buddha sets in motion the will of the Dhamma, you see, at the visible level, the Buddha is it's speaking to the five ascetics, you know, his first five disciples, and he's explaining to them the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path. But then if you look at the end of the sutta, you see that when the Buddha finishes speaking, then the text continues, while the Buddha was expounding this discourse on the Dhamma, first the earth deities gave a shout. This wheel of the Dharma has been set in motion by the Blessed One in the Deer Park at Benares, Varanasi. Then the lower level of deities, the lowest level of deities, they hear that shout, of the earth deities, and they give a shout, the will of Dharma has been set in motion by the Blessed One. Then up through the six heavenly worlds, one after another, all of the deities in turn give this exclamation of delight that the will of Dharma has been set in motion by the Blessed One until it reaches above the six heavenly worlds, We come to realms above these called the Brahma world, which are inhabited by still higher grade of deities. So all of these deities also listen to the Dharma and delight in the Dharma. So it's not only the human beings who hear the Dharma, but the Buddha is called, one of his epithets is, Sattva. Satta deva manusanang. Satta is teacher, deva, deities, manusa, human beings. So the Buddha is the teacher of human beings and deities. But when the Buddha is teaching during the day, the deities don't come. Generally, they don't come to listen. Of course, they don't like the human world. Even in ancient India, where things were so calm, relatively calm and peaceful. Of course, they had their conflicts, their war, wars, their corruption, class prejudice, caste prejudice. They, I mean, it wasn't a, a, a garden of celestial delights, even in that period. But can you imagine deities coming to our human world with so much pollution in the atmosphere, such that we have electricity, flashing lights? It will be a great deterrent. (laughs) But there are places, I'm sure, in this human world where the deities will visit from time to time. Yeah, when I was in Sri Lanka, I used to live, it was in a little forest outside the. Has anybody been to Sri Lanka? To Kandy? You've been there. Have you been to Kandy? Oh, this, this past year. Okay. So you know the Temple of the Tooth. And just, there's a hill behind the Temple of the Tooth called Udawattakeli. And I used to live in that forest, Udawattakeli. So we're very, very close to the Temple of the Tooth where the Buddha's Tooth Relic is preserved. And I think that, you know, I don't have any divine vision. I can never see any deities or anything like that. But sometimes when I get close to the Temple of the Tooth, I could feel a very powerful presences, particularly at night. And I suspect that these are the presences of the deities. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I do think that there are beings like that, and that they will in certain very sacred places, holy places, manifest themselves, or at least come to be present invisibly to human beings. Okay, but during the Buddha's time, when the Buddha was alive, the deities would come probably every night, or very often at night, sometimes individually, more often, I believe, in large groups to question the Buddha. And so we have a whole collection of discourses in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses, called Discourses to Deities. Okay, so coming back to the sutta... Okay, so the deity approaches the Bhagava, the Blessed One, and even though the, in the cosmological scheme, we usually put the deva worlds above the human world, and we speak of the devas as being superior to human beings in many respects, but the deities will bow to the Buddha because the Buddha is one, though a human being, he's one who surpasses even the highest deities. So this deity bows to the Buddha, stands to one side, and then standing to one side, he speaks, he addresses the Buddha in verse. I think usually when the deities speak to the Buddha, they speak in verse. And here the deity introduces the theme of the discourse. And so we can begin again, we go back to recite in Pali again Bahu Deva Manusacha. Bahu Deva Mangalani Achintayung. Mangalani Achintayung. Akankamana Sotanang. bruhi mangala -mangala Okay, so taking it line by line, we have many devas, deities, and human beings have reflected on, have thought about mangala, blessings, And the reason that they've thought about blessings, that they've pondered on blessings, is a kankamana sotanang because they are desiring, here it says, I took another translation, longing for happiness. But actually the word sotanang means more accurately, it means safety or security. So it's not just feeling happy, but it's wishing to be secure, safe and secure in the sense of free from the dangers and the sufferings of existence, of human existence. And according to the explanation in the commentary, first groups of human beings started to have a discussion about what is a mangala, what is auspicious, what is good fortune. And maybe the counterpart of a mangala in in our Western culture would be like, some people believe, or at least when I was a kid, I don't know whether they still have these beliefs, If you find a four-leaf clover, you say, ah, I'm lucky I found a four-leaf clover. So the four-leaf clover is a mangala, something that is going to bring one good luck, safety, security. People, when they drive, I remember, I don't know if people still do this, they put a rabbit's claw, a rabbit's foot hanging on a chain in the car. It really seems a cruel thing to do, (laughs) even if they haven't killed the rabbit themselves, but even to participate in that. But they believe that the rabbit's claw and somehow for some reason brings good fortune. And other people like the Christians will have a little emblem of, is it Saint Christopher in their car, who's the, um, the patron saint of travel, And Hindus will have maybe Lakshmi or Ganesh. Well, Ganesh is usually associated with learning, but I I mean I don't have come from that background. Oh, he takes away obstacles. Okay, so Ganesh, yeah. And Buddhists will also have an image of the Buddha or Chinese Buddhist image of Guanyin Bodhisattva, the. Bodhisattva of great compassion. So these are things which are considered mangalas, auspicious signs, things which conduce to safety, security, and well-being. So now this deity has come. Also this discussion started amongst human beings. So people had different opinions. One said, this is a mangala. Another said, no, that's not a mangala. This is a mangala. Another group said, "No, that's not a mangala. This is a mangala." And so they had this debate took place amongst them. Then their own protective deities were listening, listening to the debate amongst the humans, and they heard the different opinions, and they started to debate amongst themselves, until the deities eventually came to the king of the deities, the ruler of the deities, whose name is Sakra or Indra, and said, please, you are our king, our leader, our wise one. Please, you tell us what is the real meaning of blessing. And then Sakra said to the deities, why are you asking me? Have you gone to the human world and have you asked The Buddha, the Blessed One, He is the one who's really the one of superlative wisdom, not me. So you've bypassed the Buddha and you come to me. I don't know. Go back to the human world and ask the Buddha. And so then the deities in a group, they choose one of their of their community as the spokesperson. And they all descend back to the human world, illuminating Jeta's Grove. And they say to the Buddha, We ourselves, the deities and human beings, longing for safety, for security, for true well-being, have pondered on blessings. Bruhi Mangala Please speak up and tell us what is Uttama is like the almost like the word ultimate, the foremost supreme mangala blessing. And of course for the Buddha's teaching, the ultimate blessing is the attainment of nibbana. But the Buddha didn't begin this discourse by saying, there are the four foundations of mindfulness. There is mindfulness of breathing. There is insight on impermanence, suffering, non-self. There is dependent origination. Meditate on that and achieve the ultimate blessing of nirvana. But rather the Buddha starts right at square one And so, I've laid this out, I've sort of broken the sutta down according to what I call the ground plan of the Mangala Sutta. I've broken this into different sections. Tomorrow we're going to go through the sections in detail, starting to go through. So we have these different sections, what I call proper orientation, which getting the necessary guidance one needs to lead a successful, fulfilling, wholesome life that will be, that will be beneficial to oneself, beneficial to, one's, to others, then establishing secure foundations, preparing oneself, training oneself for success in life, then leading a virtuous life in the world by fulfilling family responsibilities in relation to parents, spouse, and children, in relation to livelihood, then becoming a pillar of society, one who can benefit one's community and the rest of society, following a code of personal ethics, how to live a life of moral integrity, then cultivating the inner virtues which are conducive to one's personal spiritual progress. Then, after all of these steps are solidly established, then one embarks on what I call the ascent towards realization, the practice of the Lokuttara Dhamma, the world-transcending Dhamma, culminating in the penetrative insight into the Four Noble Truths, the realization of Nibbana, and then embodying or living the world-transcending Dhamma in the world. And so you could see through this ground plan of the Mangala Sutta, even though we have here just, what is it, 12 verses with 38 blessings indicated just usually by just one word or one phrase. We have a map or blueprint for the whole course of our life, how to live a wholesome life proceeding in sequence, in proper sequence, from the proper orientation, through the foundations, through the multiple aspects, dimensions, in which our life is embedded up to the ultimate attainment. Okay, maybe I should leave some time now. We have a few minutes for questions that might have arisen from this talk. So please feel welcome to ask questions. Yes, please. Can just review the last of his routine? The last part of the Buddha's daily routine? Yeah. the middle of the night watch? And I don't know if... Oh, maybe I didn't take the last... Thanks. Um, the last uh, part of his routine. Okay, in the middle watch of the night, this is when the deities from... They said, the entire world system arrived to ask questions. Then, towards the last watch of the night, then the Buddha will lie down mindfully and sleep perhaps about three, two or three hours. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here tonight. Um, you gave sort of the three different... Um, it was Samas The types of Buddhas? The types of Buddhists. Yeah. Is is the third one are householders included in the third one? Or mm. and does a householder attain enlightenment? Okay, this is the one called the Arahat, the Arahat disciple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. This is a good question. Okay, now according to this gets a little bit technical. <laughs> I'm going to deal with this more probably on Sunday, but I'll just give a quick uh, preview here. Now, in. Okay, let's put it this way. There are four stages of realization leading up to arhatship. Now, the arhat is one who is completely liberated, who has eradicated the, the defilements of the mind. But there are four stages leading up to arhatship, or arhatship is the fourth of four stages. So the first stage is what is called stream entry. So this is one who who has made the initial breakthrough to realization of the Dhamma. And when one becomes a stream enterer, then one enters the stream of the Dhamma so that one is bound to realize arhatship. Beyond stream enterer, there's a, the next stage is called once-returner, which means that this person will come back into the human world one more time and then reach liberation. The third stage is called non-returner, which means that one has reached a, a level of realization such that one doesn't come back to the human world, but one takes rebirth in one of the divine realms and then reaches liberation there. Then the fourth stage is that of arhatship, which is realization of the final stage. Okay, now it's said that householders can reach the first three stages and continue to live on as arhats. They can also, on some conditions, they can reach the fourth stage. But it's said that if a householder achieves arhatship, it will happen either when they are very close to death, so that very soon afterwards they are going to die, or after attaining arhatship as a householder, they can't continue to live on as a householder. Of course, to live on as a householder, one has to sort of take care of daily tasks to maintain one's livelihood. So they'll just naturally and spontaneously they will renounce the household life and then embark on the life of renunciation. But householders do reach the first three, three stages and live on as householders. As long as if one reaches a stage of stream entry, then one is assured of the final result. I saw that the light was dimmed. Is that giving a signal or...? Oh, I see. It was a screen that went in. Okay, maybe any, any more questions? Okay, then maybe we'll end for the evening. And I have a particular way that I like to end. And this is by sharing the blessings or sharing the merits. Is it readable from? Okay, I'll, I'll scroll down uh, verse by verse. Okay, what we are going to do, it's said that when we speak on the Dhamma, listen to the Dhamma, meditate, discuss Dhamma, we generate wholesome karma, which is called merit. And now we're going to share the merit with other beings, with the devas or deities who are perhaps uh, the protective deities of Manhattan, New York City, the Nagas, these are the dragon spirits that <laughs> influence the weather. And then we share the merits with them, asking them to protect the sasana, the Buddha's teaching, to protect the expounding of the teaching, to protect ourselves and others. So the first time, maybe you just listen, sort of with your mind generating. Kind and compassionate thoughts towards all beings, and I'll recite in Pali. But if any of you are familiar with this chant, you can join me in the chant. <laughs> Akasatachabhumata Deva naga anumoditva Chirang rakāntu sa sanang. Akas attachabumata. Deva naga mehitika. Punyantang Chirang rakāntu de sanang. Akas Devanagam hiddi ka punyantang Anumodita chirang rakantu mung parang etavatacham hehi sampadang punya sampadang sabe devanumodantu saba sampati siddhya etavatacham hehi sampadang punya sampadang sabe butanu modantu saba sampati sedya cham sampadang punya sampadang sabe satanu modantu saba sampati sedya Pavagupadaya vichi hetato, etantare satakayupa pana, rupia rupicha, asanya sanino, dukapamuchantu, pusantu nibuting. Then we all say sadu, sadu, sadu. Okay. Yeah and then I will do bow three times to the Buddha if you feel comfortable you can join me in the bow if you're not familiar with that you could just do three half bows it's a little risky thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate